0: Oh Gabriel. I said New Year, New Me? Not really.
1: <laughs> More like old me. New Year, old me. Got him. So you know what rhymes with dank Shank? Crank. Flank? Mank. Mank.
0: Mank, I actually know, I don't know him personally, but I'm familiar with the Mankiewicz family because the younger Mankiewicz is always being promoted on IMDb for his personal, he does a video series, Oh, or he used to anyway, that was always on the front page of IMDb. So when I heard there was going to be a movie based off of A. Mankiewicz from the early 20th century, I was wondering if he was related, and in fact, he is. I guess he's some sort of Hollywood royalty, if that's fair
1: to say. Yeah. It is fair to say. So, we should say that we wanted to bring this to you a while ago, this episode. True. But there were a lot of delays because we knew somebody that worked on this movie. David Fincher. (laughs) (laughs) And we were trying to schedule something for him to come and record with us here, but COVID got in the way, so... It didn't work out that he could come physically and be present with us today so what we have is a recording of him and questions that we asked him what it was like to work on this film uh we had to record this not together but apart (laughs) but we hope to eventually do a podcast again where he is with us he his name is ryan george
0: Ryan George, everybody.
1: So here is my conversation with Ryan Adam George. Ryan George. Ryan George. Who was a production assistant on location while filming Mink. Here we go. Ryan, how's it going, man? What's
2: up, Steve and fellow podcaster? Yeah, sorry this couldn't happen in person, but thank goodness for technology.
1: Yeah. So I know how we met, but I'm curious to hear what you would say. Uh, what do you remember of how we met
2: okay so love the first question we (laughs) met dude at your brother's uh, church service it was a college thing I believe Mm -hmm. and yeah man it was a fun little season of my life it was like a half a year I think I went and it was super fun really enjoyable good people
1: yeah it was good times
2: yeah dude yeah man that was a while ago now
1: yeah it was So the first time that I think I saw you were working in the industry in television and movies, you were working on Last Man Standing, I think? Yeah. So what led you to working on a David Fincher movie? I know he's been involved with Netflix and stuff. Is it because seems like you work on a lot of Netflix productions? Or did it have to do with that or
2: Yeah, dude, so how the industry works and what my job is. So like I'm trying to just stay in the industry working hard, making good money, but you know, I don't wanna like push and be pretentious and sound like a (laughs) dude. be like i want to make a movie because everyone (laughs) wants to do that yeah so my job uh i'm in the ad realm right and the more days i work i'll get in the guild automatically the dga
1: that's the uh directors guild of america yeah. for people who don't know
2: yeah and so last man standing it's just been like a stepping block man it started with pilots for fox that never got made mm-hmm. then i got last man standing and then i got a netflix movie and then another netflix movie and then it just rolled into more than i got spider-man far from home what? uh terminator dark fate oh, cool. and these are just my screen credits so i'm not like giving you everything i've done because that would be kind of annoying (laughs) because I've done a lot. Uh, It's been a pretty cool three-year gig so far. Hoping to keep it going.
1: Yeah, so then you eventually wound up working with Fincher. Was that, again, because of Netflix? or?
2: Yeah, dude, Fincher's the man. It's not like Netflix rolls in the Netflix productions. Like, yeah, some people remember you, but you just got to have the right people you know. And I had buddies on that movie for the whole time just from the beginning and they just were like Ryan jump on when I became available and I was like absolutely and then once we ended they did like uh it was like 11 days of reshoots because Finchman wanted to change some things up (laughs) and I was on for all those days as well and uh yeah really rad experience seeing him work is crazy
1: Yeah, I can't imagine. So let's talk about Meg. And this movie is unlike any movie Fincher's ever done before. Can you tell me a little bit of the background? I mean, I know David Fincher, it was sort of a passion project of his, and his dad wrote the script. Was Fincher spearheading this because of his dad, or...? Is it his own passion for Citizen Kane?
2: So, uh, yeah, you you kind of have the background. His dad wrote the script. Um, his dad passed away, and it's a passion project of his that he's been wanting to do for a while. Mm. Netflix gave him the budget and the trust. So he passed 2003, uh, Jack Fincher, and it was just one of those things that, his dad was in love with citizen kane and this idea of who orson welles and what he became because orson welles has a lot of other great movies not just citizen kane but then you find out what was the story and the mythos behind citizen kane and that kind of triggered a a love idea a passion project for his dad dad passed away so then david wanted to make it for a long time now and he got the opportunity to it was pretty cool
1: yeah it is really cool so i've heard a lot of like a lot of tales about fincher's meticulous directing like i heard he spent all day just to get the opening shot of Jesse Eisenberg walking on the campus and the opening shot of the social network. Are the stories true? What, what can you tell us about Fincher and how he operates M- meticulous
2: in that? Like he'll go for series, mm-hmm. right? So like, yeah. without kind of giving the magic away when you're filming, you know, action, we're rolling cut, right. Going again. Uh, let's touch up, you know, there's certain things you do when you cut, uh, the Finch man, uh, just goes for it sometimes and it was really rad there was an experience where uh i was on the bottom of a hill we were in this area and i was making sure people weren't coming up because the shot was overlooking the hill and it was kind of towards if you guys have seen the movie uh the whole the big like kind of witchcrafty kind of wood set built in the middle of a grassy field that they were filming with Amanda field was like on top of like the wood. I don't even know what to call that. But anyways, so <laughs> he just went for a series and it was like 30 plus minutes of him just rolling and keeping rolling. We'd cut, but we'd still be rolling. So we just reset going again. And it's just really cool because you get what you want. And sometimes it actually ends up being faster than going the cut yeah uh, we got we got fixes and going like 17 times yeah, yeah, and yeah. just that could take hours but mm-hmm. he just gets it all in one and like tries to at least you know one shot whether it's 10 30 40 mm-hmm. minutes of just rolling and resetting and rolling it's pretty rad
1: yeah so the look of this film is incredible while i was watching it, i was thinking that they shot it on film but i think you said it was digital we know fincher has always historically used red digital cameras so can can you tell us, if anything, about the specs or what kind of cameras they were using?
2: Yeah, Red made this camera for David hmm. that he was only going to use on Mank. And it gave it, like, you guys noticed. And there was a lot of, and they kind of did it with shots, too. They they shot upwards kind of, like, yeah. to make it, everything look bigger, mm-hmm. the camera being lower and right. the character being over yeah, it. And yeah, just yeah. They had a lot of, like, different, not a lot of lenses, to be perfectly honest. Oh, okay. If I was going to, I'm trying to remember. I want to say there was only like three or four lenses, but like it was very uh how they got the shot in terms of the energy of the actual lens and what they use, the size. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Like, right. Like yeah, yeah, just yeah. seeing Mank and just how he almost is depriving as a human being and yeah. just to capture all of that in just this idea of like one camera, pretty much. Yeah. Not like they didn't use just one camera, but the camera Red made. Right. It's pretty freaking cool.
1: Yeah, that is really cool. Uh, talking about the score a little bit, it seems like Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross have, or at least Trent Reznor has worked with Fincher a lot before. But these guys have been on a roll. Did you have any interaction with them at all or see them? Did Fincher ever invite them on set?
2: No, I did not see uh, Trent Reznor or Atticus on set. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the score was unbelievable, right? Yes. Oh, jeez. No. Those guys are special
1: yeah they are uh, any good memories? What will you remember about working on this movie? Any good stories or
2: yeah uh shook David's hand. that was pretty cool. yeah when you could shake hands that um, is cool. and I got to hang out with his wife. I was responsible uh-huh. for his wife for a couple of days, making uh-huh. sure she knew where she needed to be and if she needed mm-hmm. anything, I took care of her, and it was kind of cool, so um. Mad props to the to the Finch Man and his uh his whole process. It's pretty it's daunting, but he's pretty freaking special. And everyone around him, yeah. I mean, he's a really good dude. <laughs> like, he like uh hmm. he's he doesn't blow up. He just, you know, he's meticulous, but he does I didn't I didn't see him blow up. Uh I'm sure he got angry, but he kept that to himself. Yeah. Um but yeah, the time I was there, he didn't like It And for the movie we were making, too. So it's just pretty cool.
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. So The Rock posted a picture of you. Um, Can you tell us that story?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, The Rock thing is super cool. So I'm working on an where I guess we finished, but we did a big Netflix action movie with The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds, and Gail Gideh. They're doing (laughs) an action comedy big piece together. It's coming out next year, and we kick butt and did it in a sequestered bubble like the NBA. It was gnarly. Uh, mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a later podcast. I don't want to get too much away. Yeah. But um, yeah, and he just took a liking to my work ethic, I guess, and my energy. And then I wore a shirt one day and it caught his attention even more. And he pulled me aside. He was like, hey, we got to take a picture. And he took a picture with me and he posted it. And he wrote some really cool comments about me, which was crazy. And then, yeah, he got me another. I'm working on his next movie, too. And he's kind of like a low-key big homie now. And he's making, you know, that's the kind of thing cool. in the industry. It's kind of cool. Um, you just got to work hard, kind of say yes, but obviously, like, keep to your principles and your moral code. Yeah, yeah. Right. And But just, like, get it done. And then just also do it with a smile and appreciation for what we're doing. Because mm. at the end of the day, like we're making movies and it's just crazy or television TV is just as cool as movie. Like I love both outlets. They're extremely mm-hmm. special. And mm-hmm. I hope to, and he knows some of my aspirations and what I want to do. Oh. So he's going to help me hopefully, uh, get somewhere cool. And if he doesn't, it's great. I'm still going to find a way cause I'm in here and that's going to make it work, but he's yeah. a good man. Yeah. And as of now, uh, yeah, Dwayne Johnson is, uh, keeping it real. So <laughs> it's good stuff.
1: Yeah, that is good so what are your aspirations ultimately you said you want to get in the DGA do you want to direct
2: I want to write and direct kind of like a Rob Reiner John Favreau <laughs> combined yeah. yeah. in a like Wes Anderson mm-hmm. David uh, Lynch vibe yeah, I know it sounds yeah. crazy but no. I love David Lynch uh, in Drive, Twin Peaks Yep. Um, I love obviously Wes Anderson uh, Rushmore, charging limited. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, what Rob Reiner did for, you know, TV and princess bride mm-hmm. and just everything else. And then he acts sometimes now Then what John does obviously now with, uh, mm-hmm. from swingers to Mandalorian, yeah. it's just like, whoo. so, um, yeah. yeah, big aspirations, big goals, but yeah. it's going to happen. God yeah. willing, of course. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait, but yeah, that's kind of what I want to do and who I want to be awesome. and obviously keep my love of Jesus involved. And not like sacrificing anybody and becoming a part of any cult. Yes,
1: no cults. (laughs) Yeah, cults are uh, not not as fun as they look. Well, thanks for being on. Um, How can people keep in touch with you or follow you? Or uh, do you want to shout out like a social media thing or any final words? Oh, yeah. Uh,
2: People can hit me up if they want on Instagram. Mm. Uh, Ryan underscore Adam underscore George. Yeah, and it's a fun little just nerdy journey I'm putting together. And it's just strictly social media. So I'm not trying to like make movies and have everyone watch them on Instagram. I think that's a little silly. Maybe one day. But right now it's just what's going on, you know? Yeah, Uh, Set life sometimes when I'm allowed to, when it's not against my NDAs. Because NDAs are getting gnarlier these days. Uh, Uh, But yeah, the movie Red Notice. Make sure you all watch that 2021. It's going to be great. And then I'm working on Black Adam right now, his next movie. We'll see how that goes.
1: That's awesome. All right. Well, uh, for now, we'll say ta-ta. We're going to have you on again, hopefully, when COVID is not as much of a thing. God,
2: It's okay. Come back later. Love you, Steven. Love you, too. uh, Good stuff. Keep it going. And I'll talk to you guys soon.
1: We'll talk to you. Holy cow. Honestly, it was really great to have at least be able to hear from him, even though he couldn't be here with us. So we look forward to doing that again. Gabe, did you learn anything from Ryan's disclosure?
0: Yeah, it's been a while since I've been on set. So to hear his insights as a PA is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I'm extremely interested to hear about his time on Far From Home, which he said that he has a lot of information on. I think he said he was assistant to John Watts. Yeah. But would really like to hear more about that one day, Ryan. Anyway, let's talk about Make. Let's talk about what it is for people that don't know yet. It was a movie. Yep. (laughs) It is a movie.
0: (laughs) A film by David Fincher for David Fincher's father, financed by Netflix.
1: Yeah. They gave David Fincher, historically known for uh, movies like Seven, Social Network, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Game, Gone Girl, and most popularly... Alien 3. (laughs) (laughs) He did do Alien 3. He also did Fight Club. Nice. For people who aren't familiar with David Fincher, those are his films. I would check out all of them because he's honestly amazing. He was probably my favorite director up until Denny Villeneuve popped up. But Fincher is an astounding director, and this particular movie is unlike anything he's ever done so it tonally and thematically technically maybe technically yeah. it feels very different from his other works and part of that I mean all of that is due to the fact that he's mirroring and mimicking Citizen Kane as a look and feel for this movie so this movie is following Herman Mankiewicz who was the writer of the movie Citizen Kane despite what the industry Monster or debate. Orson
0: Welles would have you believe.
1: <laughs> yeah. And David Fincher's dad was I guess obsessed with Citizen Kane as a movie, as a motion picture and as a talkie. <laughs> and wrote this script to pay homage to and also to mirror Citizen Kane and pay tribute to Herman Mankiewicz or Mank.
0: And I don't think Jack Fincher had ever written anything else. This was just sort of a labor of love for him across yeah. his life was constructing this script, which probably changed a bit still once it went into production. But David Fincher would say this is his dad's story.
1: Yeah. I'm sure there were some slight small changes here and there, but david fincher is giving his dad complete credit for writing credit and jack fincher died back in 2003 and David Fincher has been trying to make this ever since, as Ryan and I just said, and Netflix finally gave them the budget to do so. And so David Fincher was stoked to finally be able to make this movie.
0: Yeah. Hadn't David been trying to make this film for a couple decades, but no one would finance him? And then Netflix, since they already had a good working relationship with Fincher, said we're more than happy to support your your dream.
1: Fincher had previously worked on House of Cards and Mindhunter. Rest in peace. Too soon, man. They'll
0: probably bring it back.
1: Such a good show. Netflix.
0: Netflix. <laughs> oh, wait, bring it back. Netflix. We've talked about Netflix before, how they... Netflix just has the shotgun approach to green lighting a lot of productions, but I don't know how much they gave David, but this seems like a higher tier of production. Now let's look up the budget. I'm curious how much it would have grossed. If it had been released in a theater, probably would have done well, just with Fincher's name on it.
1: Uh, they only made it for 20 to 30 million, which oh, is, isn't a, crazy big. It's modest. Considering, but I mean, it's not a uh, blockbuster film with like, a bunch of special effects and stuff. It's not a Marvel movie. It's not Wonder Woman 1984. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> but it says it's already made its money back, tripled its money actually back. Yeah. But, so you have this story about Mank kind of interacting with... The Hollywood movie machine. The Hollywood movie machine, but also William William Randolph Randolph Hearst. The mogul, the media mogul. And William Randolph Hearst and the interaction between him and Mank and why Mank was sort of inspired to write a story sort of based around him. And, you know, then we got Citizen Kane because of that, but... The interesting thing about this particular movie is that it looks like Citizen Kane. It feels like Citizen Kane. kind of sounds like Citizen Kane. It sounds almost exactly like Citizen Kane. It even tastes like Citizen Kane, if you want to go there. If you, if you feel it. The emotional flavor. It feels like Citizen Kane. I've got a feeling. But when I was watching it, I was thinking, this looks like they shot it on film, like he actually used the cameras that they would have used back when they made Citizen Kane. It sounds like they recorded on the exact same devices that they used. And so the big question for me going into it was, did they shoot on film and use that sound recording equipment? And the answer was no they shot entirely on digital like Ryan said red created a specific camera just for this and i am positive that they recorded just as normal and everything that you hear was done in post well the sound That's sort of like echoey quality to yeah. the voices the echo and the kind of mono like the sound is coming at you from a mono source instead of a stereo well i was source.
0: reading it the, it was mono oh. it was single track audio versus like oh good 8 or 16 yeah, there you go. But also Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross for the score. Yeah. Also, I was reading they used instruments that were faithful to the time to make sure the score was promoting that same sense of mid to early 20th century sound. Yeah. So we've been following
1: those guys around a lot.
0: Yeah, they keep popping up in our podcast. They were, you know. It's
1: like, we might as well just only record it's podcasts about movies or shows that they've worked on.
0: It's the Trent and
1: Atticus. They Atticus. were. They did Watchmen earlier. They recently just did Soul. Pretty sure they did something else, too. Yeah, there was one more. And now they're doing Mink, or they've already done Mink. Which is a little different just due to the nature of the Yeah, time. but these guys are prolific. Yeah. They're extremely true to the art of following the vision of the vision caster, who in this case would be Fincher. And they work with him a lot. Yeah, They did Social Network. Yeah, they've done things with Fincher in the past. Yeah. Ever since Social Network. Yeah, which is one of the reasons that I really liked Social Network for the time. I thought it was really ahead of its time because of the score. Anyway, so this is a very unique movie, something you wouldn't see. I would attribute it to 2012's The Artist Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that it's trying to capture a very specific type of Hollywood film. I would say it actually does a better job than the artist did. And I'm pretty sure, again, I'm these are all just guesstimations based off of me seeing this movie and then going, oh, Fincher probably did this and this and they probably did these kinds of things. But it sounds like he directed everyone to speak with a mid or transatlantic accent. It's very heavy, especially with like Lily Collins' character. She sounds like she's speaking in a mid-Atlantic accent, which is that sort of old timey kind of phony accent that isn't really an accent that they used to do in movies. Yeah, I think it was fabricated. It was a made up accent. For film and radio. Here's an impression of it with Gabe. Hey, what coming back to you now for the pulp the the cult popcast. <laughs> the, the pulp Cop cast. The pulp the pulp cop cast We still can't figure out her name. It's been a year. The pop culture popcast. <laughs> But and so Amanda
0: Seafried's character. Yeah. Uh, her character in real life didn't have a Brooklyn accent either from what I understand. So a little bit of it was, you know, you know false. Marion Davies. Marion Davies. That's her name. Yeah. I don't think she actually sounded like that, but.
1: Yeah. So we had Gary Oldman as Mank. He was great. Amanda Seafried played Marion Davies. Charles Dance. Charles Dance played. William Randolph Hurst. Hurst. Tom Burke played Orson Welles. He looked and sounded the part. Yeah. Lily Collins played the assistant to Mank after he had been in an accident and he was like kind of secluded off at a vineyard or something, writing. She played Rita Alexander.
0: Manx's wife, Sarah, was...
1: Uh, was played by... Tuppence Middleton. Tuppence Middleton. I love her. She was in, she was in Possessor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember her name popping up. She's great. And then it was great to see Tom Pelfrey, who played yeah. Joe Mankwitz. He played Mank's brother, younger brother. And it was interesting because Tom Pelfrey has been in a lot of Netflix productions. And I swear, I swear that Netflix breeds Netflix. They like actors and they keep using them for other projects. Because he's been now in Iron Fist, and then he was in season three of Ozark, and then he's shown up in this, which are all Netflix productions. Anyway, Tom Pelfrey's awesome. Gabe and I were saying, and Ali was saying, the Ozark season three podcast, we think this guy's going to be and a lot of things coming up. Yeah. So just this amazing little movie by this little director called David Fincher who's paying homage to Citizen Kane. It's done in even the same storytelling as Citizen Kane was where it's got sort of a present and then a flashback. They had the screen transitions were similar where things would fade to black often. The look of the film and how they treated it in post, like it was very, there's a lot of lack of contrast and it's like they took out a lot of the whites and they pushed the shadows a lot as far as the coloring goes. They even had real changes. Like again, we saw in In fight club there's that thing in the top right corner where films used to do this because a film would come in like a certain amount of reels and then the theater while playing the movie they'd have to do reel changes and so to indicate that the reel was about to end there'd be a a flash for a split second in the top right corner of like this little it's called a burn a film burn and that would indicate that the reels about to change so this movie even had reel changes for you know however long it was assuming that it's five to six reels According to however much footage a reel would hold at the time, I think David Fincher timed it out so that there were reel changes at the end of the scenes every time that there needed to be one. And it was I when I saw that I like about leapt out of my <laughs> seat at home. Gabe, you noticed a lot about this movie. <laughs> uh, what did you see that you liked about this movie?
0: I noticed how relevant it was to, and I wasn't expecting that because yeah. it's a story set in the 30s and it's been about 90 years since then. And it's such an interesting part of American history, you know, the age of Freddie Roosevelt, FDR. A good chunk of the movie focuses on Manx's interaction with William Randolph Hearst and how. Hearst and his people have a lot of political sway. So there's a lot of politics in this film, not just pertinent for the movie industry. And there is a lot of that that's relevant too, which is funny that I immediately connected with that since we work at a company that works with film and how so much of the bureaucracy is rubbish. But regarding politics and sort of a social commentary, there was a lot of that in this film as well, which, you know, I'm sure Jack and David Fincher... Knew what they were doing when they were writing it regarding kind of the state of the world as as it is right now. And even the push back then for, you know, it's funny, we talked about in the ideology podcast about how the modern conservative movements was sort of born out of the 80s and... And Ronald Reagan and those administrations. Mm -hmm. But you still see even going back into the earlier eras of the United States of America, this sort of dominance of both capitalism and conservatism and that Republican sensibility of this sort of upper class, upper crust dynasty level of culture. Hmm. You know, like Charles, not Charles Dance. I keep thinking of him as Charles Dance, but yeah. it's William Randolph Hearst uh, <laughs> embodies everything that is the rich and well-to-do. And so it's funny watching a story like that unfold. And Mank explains to us over the course of the film that the sensibilities that people like Mank and Upton Sinclair have, who's another character in not just the film, but in America's history, they represent sort of the people's, not really, well, it is, I guess it is more or less socialism, which is sort of the plight of the lower class or even the middle class. William Randolph Hearst came from that as well. And as soon as he became successful, and you can see this in Citizen Kane with the character of Kane, Mm -hmm. that as soon as he accumulated wealth, his life became about wealth. And so it's interesting just drawing parallels between our time and that time and how not a lot has really changed. We have new technologies, new advancements in so many industries, but at the core of us as a people, as a country, as a culture, <laughs> uh, not a lot has changed. Mm-hmm. So politics aside, it's still the rich versus the poor in so many ways. And so that's the biggest thing I took away from this film was that. And it was really interesting to see, to watch unfold. Yeah. And film was used as a vehicle for that sort of warfare as well, because some of Manx's friends and Manx People are drawn into the, the struggle. William Randolph Hearst and his buddy, the head of MGM, Louis B. Mayer, who were the heads of these studios, hiring out people to make films that were essentially propaganda. Yeah. You know, that they were smearing people like Upton Sinclair. He was the champion of the lower class, and they were using film as a way of sort of defaming him and talking about how he's just going to usher in this age of dirty, nomadic peoples, just going to roam all over your
1: beautiful... Hollywood. And who was Upton Sinclair played by?
0: It was Bill Nye. A quick little cameo role. You only see him in one scene, but he's a prominent figure that's talked about throughout the
1: film because he's sort of opposing these greater powers yeah. of Mayer and Hearst and their people. It's interesting too, because talking about themes that are relevant today that were even around back then, there's this like reoccurring theme that Hollywood's going to move to Florida. Yeah. And I literally was just talking to somebody about a month ago who was saying that because of COVID, Hollywood is going to move to Austin, Texas or Houston, Texas or something. Yeah. I just laughed and I was like, that is the same old story. (laughs) People have been saying that for ages. Yeah. You still hear Hollywood's moving to Atlanta, Georgia, because, you know, there's actual studios there, Pinewood or New York. But Hollywood is still held to be the biggest hub for filmmaking around the world. And I think it will always continue to be. I don't think it's going to move to Texas of all places.
0: Yeah. If they haven't done it yet, they're probably not going to. Yeah. And it's funny, the backdrop of this film being the 1930s, which came off the Great Depression. And now with COVID sort of creating its own economic recession, especially in the wake of A full term of Donald Trump. (laughs) Everything seems to be pertinent in more ways than one. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it is interesting that Mank, not only in the movie, these themes are relevant, but also the timing of Mank's release being toward the end of 2020 being in the middle of COVID-19 and how interesting that the themes are relevant even now, just in its release.
0: Yeah. It's released on a digital platform Yeah, versus, you know, Hollywood itself
1: and theaters. It's, it's and super interesting. The irony is several layers deep. <laughs> Yeah. And that's what I think apart from it being just a, a very good movie, it's just super ironic on so many levels. And I think that speaks to part of the intrigue of the movie.
0: Yeah. I saw a lot of criticism about, well, a lot of people enjoyed this film, but one of the points of criticism that I kept seeing was how this film sort of lacked, uh, an emotional heart to it. Like, um, mm, that's like pe- people were asking themselves, like, why, like, what's the point of this film and how, despite its technical achievements, it it sort of wasn't gripping for them. Hmm. And we were talking about it when we
1: saw it, like we really enjoyed it. And we saw, well, I felt the same way when I was more uneducated about Citizen Kane. I thought it it lacked an emotional heart. So I I find that interesting on another level because Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane for a reason. It's not considered one of the greatest movies of all time because it lacks emotional heart. If you can't find the emotional heart in it, then you must be missing the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, and Citizen Kane, and the story it's based on, which is Hearst's life, is sort of a a character study on a lack of humanity. (laughs) I mean, I think in at least one way. Yeah. So it's funny, yeah, that it...
1: You could easily just insert, you know, like a Bezos or something at this
0: point. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's funny that people have this perceived sense of this coldness or this lack of emotional depth when I think it's
1: trying to explore that specifically. And that was, I mean, still is one of the more fascinating stories to tell i always find those stories super fascinating steve jobs was another interesting character when there were like three movies that were made about him all played by different famous actors and they were all different but they all had that underlying idea of why was steve jobs the way that he was why was he sort of disconnected from being able to relate to people
0: Yeah, it's the idea of of a it's fascinating. of a very accomplished individual, like a, the great man. Yeah, uh, in a classical sense, is very interesting. The
1: aviator with um, Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is another good example. Yeah. Yeah. America's full of people like that. Even people that aren't rich, people yeah. can be puffed up with their own self so much. Their ego is that and they can't uh, figure out how to function in society because they're too inflated, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's why one of the reasons I loved Charles Dance's Hearst is because he has this intelligence. There's a uh, poise there, yeah. Yeah, I used the word um, spacey earlier because I was thinking about Louis B. Mayer as a foil to Hearst, as a character who seems like he's kind of an airhead. He's not... Mm really clued into the room. Because so many sequences in this film, it's a scene with Mank just sort of going off. He's just giving these very fanciful mm-hmm. soliloquies mm-hmm. to a party and Hearst is entirely clued into what he's saying and what he's really meaning what he's doing yeah, and he knows the thing I was either reading or they established late in the film is that Hearst likes having Mank around because he's a character he's a funny guy but Hearst isn't stupid Hearst knows what Mank is doing whereas someone like Louis B. Mayer who's kind of the uh, stereotypical, you know, like he's not a mustache-twirling villain, but he represents sort of the base, the worst parts of the upper class. How they're so out of touch with everything that's going on around them. Yeah, you have characters like Hearst where they know exactly what they are and what they come from and where they're going. Mm-hmm. That's why it was. I didn't know myself that Hearst had come from more of a populist, kind of a socialist upbringing. I think that's what they were trying. I still haven't done the extra research to flesh that out. But I think that was the point that Mank was trying to make with Cain was that he came from these humble beginnings and he became a mogul versus
1: yeah. people like Mayer who just seem to exist in their space their whole lives. And he was predicted at one point to bring about the socialist revolution. Yeah. in because he could become something that a lot of other people can't. Yeah. Could he actually bring about justice for the rest of us? Festivus. Festivus. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And there were a lot of other really cool characters in this film too. Yeah, Irving Thalberg was fascinating because he was another guy that came from humble beginnings and sort of embraced the affluence and the power that came with his station and sort of turned his back on other people for it. He was played by
1: Ferdinand Kingsley. Yeah. Which is a great name.
0: It's good. A lot of very quotable moments in this film, which, you know, who knows if they were really said, I'm sure there were a lot of liberties taken with the dramatization of the events that took place.
1: Do you want to read one?
0: Yeah. I I wrote a couple down. There was a quote from Sinclair. This one, I I think was an actual quote because they used Sinclair as sort of exactly the space he represented in history. Yeah. Uh, This one was regarding religion when he was doing some picketing or something in the film when we actually see his cameo. He says, truth has nothing to fear from error, whereas reason is left free to combat it. So that sort of summed up one of the big themes of the film for me, which is how they used film as a vehicle, like I said, to sort of, I mean, like we do today with- Promote agenda. Yeah. Trump's whole thing of fake news, how he's constructed in his head, fighting against fake news when he himself sort of created the idea of fake news where you you can publish and politicize anything- and as they say in another quote, after that, Mank says, if you keep telling people something untrue loud and long enough, they're apt to believe it. So the power of marketing, pop culture, all that stuff, as long as you're spamming people's feeds, mm-hmm. you know, more or less with these things that are really categorically untrue then they're they're going to believe it and we live more so now than ever in the age of misinformation and misrepresentation that was just interesting to watch the sort of the beginnings of it because film in the 30s was really just starting like hollywood was blowing up still even despite the depression talkies as they would call them you know you were still rolling off of the silent film era sort of transitioning into talkies and and movies in color yeah so film as a medium was still just sort of blossoming and they were discovering all the things that they could do and all the things they could get away with mm-hmm. that the people would just eat up. Not yeah. understanding or at least not really being privy to the truth because yeah. this is what was provided to them was this false narrative of...
1: I think truth is usually proven in retrospect. You know? Yeah. So it's, Un- it, Unfortunately... It, it, <laughs> It takes 20 years for a generation to pass to look back and be like, well, this is what was going on at the time.
0: Well, even now I feel like, and this might just be naivety, but I feel like even though we live, like I said, in the age of misinformation where there's so much just garbage floating around, I think if you really do the research and you keep cross-referencing, you know, different sources, I think you can really start to piece together what,
1: what truth is, you know, regardless of what you're looking for. I think that's true. I think as you're speaking... I would just change it to be like one can if one were privy to one being fill in the blank individual, but to speak for the whole of society right now, I think that's the interesting thing to look back on as while there are people that know the truth in the midst of the chaos, the chaos is still predominant yeah.
0: and and probably always will be unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so
1: in a time like even now during covid nineteen and the end of trump being president for the last four years like we're not going to really be able to have analysts that look on this retrospectively and say well this is what was happening in society at the time and this is why most people couldn't actually make up their own minds and so forth like you said, unless you really know what you're doing, now you're probably not going to care enough or be able to find the truth amidst the fabrications. Yeah,
0: it's tough. It takes a lot of work. And uh, who can really say anymore, yeah. right? <laughs> well, back to the film, did you have any favorite moments, any scenes that uh, stand out to you or will stay with you? I only ask because I was just thinking about sequences in the film that, that I remember. And for instance, the one of my favorite moments is when Mank goes to the speaking of politics, they have a they have a vote, right? I can't remember what it was for. It was some local thing because it was Sinclair running against mayor's people, I think. And they were there at the night of the vote and it was this sort of opulent party that Mank goes to. And there's this incredibly I mean, if you're talking about things that resemble the nineteen thirties style of filmmaking. Yeah. There's this montage where he's at the party and he's drinking and so you're not sure oh, if he's just yeah. drunk. Yeah. And it's just, it's cutting and fading in and out of different parts of the party and yeah. the celebration as the votes are coming through. And then the party ends with the mayor's people winning the election for whatever they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that felt like another scene to me that was that was perfectly constructed and edited to represent the time, but also the sort of emotion they're trying to get out of the film, which is, this feels like a dream. This is some kind of dream sequence for Mank because he's yeah. he doesn't really feel like these people, but he's sort of
1: indulging yeah them because he's it's like he's trapped or something yeah he's finding them interesting well there's so many like little parts i'd say that the things that stick out for me the most are the the larger set pieces like when he's walking through the zoo oh yeah with amanda Seafried and marion's character and they're like looking yeah. at the drafts and stuff and hearst has his own yeah his own like massive garden yeah that I think it's a tourist spot now still yeah, at Hearst Castle. Yeah, and then the very end too. So that whole scene basically in the final parts of the third act where Mank shows up to dinner and he's already a little drunk, but he's still one of the smartest people in the room besides Hearst, and he just starts kind of sh- on everybody that's there (laughs) and he ruins all of his relationships at that point and it's doing it in a way where it's cutting back and forth and that mirrored my favorite part of Citizen Kane which was also the end of Citizen Kane where the same sort of thing happens where it shows a thing in the present and then flashes back to this thing what shows sort of his downfall or the catalyst of how he became to the place where you get to where you're actually telling the story in the present. And so I really really just loved that. It's sort of like a full circle moment. And so the fact that they mirrored that almost perfectly was just fascinating to me. I'll never forget that. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Fincher nailed the non-linear path. (laughs) Super, storytelling. good. I, I loved it. Yeah. We should shout out some of the technical people Yeah. Because I think too, just like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that this movie has a potential to be nominated for some stuff.
0: Netflix going big.
1: (laughs) Or go home, right? Or going home. Even though we all are home this year. Yeah. Or last year, or it's also this year. But who is the cinematographer? Eric Messerschmidt. Messerschmidt? He did a great job. Really, really good. I think this movie is going to launch his career, honestly, much more than some of his past work. Uh, It was edited by Kirk Baxter, production design by Donald Graham Burt, art direction, Chris Crane, Dan Webster, costume design by Trish Somerville, Uh, which the wardrobe and costume design here was super awesome.
0: Yeah, it was a focal point of the film, I think.
1: And then there's a huge makeup department, lots of artists. A few of the producers would be Cian Chaffin, William Doyle, Peter Mavromates. Andrea McKee, Eric Roth, and Douglas Urbanski. And again, we already said that the music was by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It's a great score for this film. But this was a great movie. We would highly recommend it for people, especially who love film. And the history of film. As a genre? Yeah. (laughs) Film as film. (laughs) Film as genre. But we also want to say thanks again to Ryan for being as present as you could this time around. Yeah, Ryan's awesome We'll talk again soon He is awesome I need more stories about Finchman and The Rock <laughs> I know you Sounds like a children's novel Call him Finchman And we will play something from Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor again here On the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross podcast yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that should exist if it doesn't
0: Gabe, any final words? I could leave you off with a quote Mank says, we have to be vigilant People in the dark willingly checking their disbelief at the door He's talking about humans. <laughs> he wasn't talking about Trump's administration? No. Oh, okay. Close. Nor them. his followers, but he could have been. Yeah. He seemed to have some foresight. <laughs> <laughs> Meg. This has been Meg.